Have you ever wondered why a certain house in your neighborhood has stood abandoned for years or even decades? Or maybe you've heard about a terrible murder in your town, but you've never known exactly where it happened. Hi, I'm Jules, and welcome to Morbid Tourism, the podcast. On this podcast, I'm going to talk about the true crime cases that may have happened closer to home than you thought. Warning. This episode includes disturbing content, including descriptions of violence, sexual assault, and rape, and may be triggering for some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. I usually give credit to my sources at the end of each episode, but this case actually has very little written about it, and I wanted to give credit up front to ChillingCrimes.com, where I got most of my information for this story. The Olympics is a time for the world to come together to marvel at the athletic feats from individuals and athletes all over the world. Hundreds of the world's top athletes come together to compete after having trained for years. For many, the Olympics are the pinnacle of success in their field. The 2020 Summer Olympics in Tokyo have just finished. They just had their closing ceremonies on Sunday, and the athletes are now heading back to their home countries, either in glory or in defeat. Many are also faced with a difficult decision. Now that the summer games are over, do they continue to train in hopes that they'll again make it to the next Olympic Games, or is it time to move on and maybe start training someone new to follow in their footsteps? Is it time to move on completely, maybe start a new life somewhere? Although the Olympic Games quite literally put these athletes on pedestals, the harsh reality is that the vast majority of Olympians will never make it to the level of wealth and fame of people like Katie Ledecky or Simone Biles. You know, these are household names. They have a lot of sponsorship money and they've won, you know, multiple gold medals, but they're kind of the exception to the rule. There are hundreds of athletes that never get to this level and live somewhat normal lives. You know, they have regular day jobs. They have, um, you know, families that they have to take care of. They don't have someone telling them, you know, creating a meal plan for them and telling them exactly what to eat. They're normal people, you know, because of this, because, you know, the vast majority of athletes are not reaching this level of success where everything is kind of taken care of for them. Uh, it shouldn't be that surprising when an athlete decides not to continue training after they've competed in the Olympics. In 1960, the Winter Olympics were held in Squaw Valley, California, and this is a ski resort. It's located just northwest of Lake Tahoe, uh, which is on the California-Nevada border. It has a rich history of ski competitions. Hundreds of athletes from around the globe converged in Squaw Valley to compete in the various sports. One of these athletes was Sonia McCaskey from England. She was an alpine skier and she was selected to compete for Great Britain in the giant slalom event. She celebrated her 21st birthday on the second day of the Olympics. And although she was a very talented skier, she placed 40th overall in her event and was last among the other women from Great Britain competing in this event. 
But there was something about this area that really appealed to Sonia. And after the Olympic Games, she actually decided to get a place in Reno, which is pretty close to Squaw Valley. Reno's known as the biggest little city in the world. And like I said, it's less than an hour from Squaw Valley. And it's even a shorter distance to other amazing ski resorts on the north side of Lake Tahoe. Because of the proximity to the mountains and to the sport that she was so passionate about, it really made sense for her to be in Reno. And even though her Olympic dreams had been shattered, you know, she didn't place, she didn't do all that well, she still felt that she could, you know, live in this area and still be a ski instructor, train other people who were learning how to ski. And so in this way, she was able to continue, you know, being a part of her sport, even though the Olympics were kind of out of the picture for her at this point. She decided to actually move into this brand new two-bedroom, one-bath duplex on the south side of Reno, located at 2640 Yori Avenue. So Reno, Nevada is an interesting city. It enjoys a lot of the same like lax gambling laws that made Las Vegas the metropolis that it is today, the huge tourist destination. Um, Reno does have much more inclement weather, though, than Vegas, and it actually averages about 20 inches of snowfall a year and thunderstorms in the summer. So with the snowfall, you know, and being close to the mountains, it's great for people who like to ski, but it never became the huge tourist destination that, you know, Vegas became. And compared to Vegas, it really is a small town. But in the early 60s, there were still several large casinos and coupled with the ski resorts that were, you know, an hour's drive away tops, these two things really made up the majority of the economy for the city. And after the 1960 Olympics, Sonia McCaskey, she got a job as a secretary at a meat company, and she worked there uh, Monday through Friday, kind of standard desk job. But on the weekends, she actually found a job as a ski instructor at this resort called Slide Mountain. It was a a smaller resort, um, but it was really close to Reno, so it made sense for her to be there. And so in this way, she was able to continue practicing and sharing the sport that she loved. Sonia also had two small children, one of whom's father lived in the Reno area, but the children mainly lived with her in the duplex. She'd been married once, but it didn't work out. And so she was divorced and really was living as a single mother. Her neighbors described Sonia as quiet, but smart and really nice. She had this really sleek, cool looking white Triumph sports car. And this is like a tiny little two seater car, but on the back of her sports car, she put a ski rack on it and it made a really unique looking car. She also enjoyed taking photos. She was really proud of her photography. And a lot of the photos that were hanging throughout her home were photos that she had taken herself. She also really enjoyed, you know, dressing up and having friends over for dinner parties. And that's actually exactly what she did on the evening of Thursday, April 4th, 1963. Sonia's two children were being cared for and they were out of the home that night. One was with an overnight babysitter um, and the other one was with the child's father. So Sonia was really able to kind of relax, enjoy the evening with her friends, and she didn't have to worry about anything. 
She got dolled up in a dress and pearls, which is something that she did often when she was hosting or going to parties. And she really looked just picture perfect. The dinner went well, and after dinner, Sonia's guests left fairly early in the night. It was a Thursday night, and most of them, including Sonia, had work the next morning, so it wasn't like an all-night crazy party. It was really just like, hey, come over, let's have dinner, let's chat, and everyone left probably around 9 p.m., if not earlier. After her friends left, Sonia changed out of her party dress. Um, She washed it and she hung it up on the line outside of her home just so that it would dry overnight. She tidied up in the kitchen, cleaned up everything, and she went to sleep around 11 p.m. that night. That same night, 19-year-old high school student Thomas Lee Bean couldn't sleep. He decided to go for a walk in the cool spring air, which is something that he enjoyed doing on these sleepless nights. And eventually he found himself on Yori Avenue. He noticed Sonia's white Triumph sports car, the one that I mentioned previously with the big ski rack on the back that was very unique looking. And so he decided to walk up to the car and just take a closer look. He then noticed Sonia's dress dry hanging outside of the duplex, the one that she had worn at the dinner party earlier that night that was drying. Thomas had stolen women's clothing before, using them for his own sexual pleasure. Although he usually stole the clothing directly off the line, this time he decided to see if he could find more inside the home. Thomas crept around the house and made his way to the back door He tried the doorknob and he found that it was unlocked. So he took off his shoes so that he only had his socks on his feet and he could creep through the house more quietly. He went inside and slowly tiptoed through the home, basically to see who was there. And he found only Sonia, who was asleep and alone in her bed. He stood in her bedroom for a while and just watched her sleep. He had never seen Sonia before. He had never met her. He didn't know her. But as he was standing in her bedroom watching her without her knowing that he was there, he felt powerful. This was somewhat familiar territory for Thomas. He had actually assaulted a young woman before just two years earlier in 1961. And he had been arrested because he attempted to strangle a 16-year-old girl that had been asleep on her porch. But luckily, she was able to fight him off and she survived the attack. After his arrest for that attack, he only served eight months in prison and then was released. He had also fantasized about raping a woman since he was just six years old. And standing in Sonia Mikowski's bedroom, he felt that now was his opportunity to act out his dark fantasy. After a while, Thomas got tired of watching Sonia sleep, so he crept back through the house and he found a knife, a stick, and some rope. He made a garrote with the stick and the rope. And if you're unfamiliar with what a garrote is, it's essentially a piece of rope with both ends tied to a stick. The loop of the rope is then put around the neck of a victim. And by rotating the stick, the rope gets tighter and tighter, thus strangling the victim. After he made the garrote, he slowly crept back into Sonia's bedroom and got on top of her again, very slowly and carefully making sure that he didn't wake her up right away. He then placed the garrote around her neck and began to rape Sonia, at which point she woke up. 
Although Sonia was an athlete, she was no match for the tall 19-year-old Thomas, and she was already being strangled with the garrote, so she really was unable to fight him off. She begged him to stop and told him that she had children attempting to break through to him, but it just wouldn't work. Thomas kept tightening the garrote around her neck so she couldn't breathe and then stabbed her several times with the knife that he had found. Sonia suffocated from the garrote, but Thomas's depravity had only just begun. Even after she died, Thomas continued to rape her lifeless body. When he was finished raping her, he dragged Sonia's body into the living room of the home and laid her on the carpet. He then grabbed the knife again and stabbed it deep into Sonia's chest cavity. He cut her open enough that he could reach inside of her chest cavity, grab her heart, and pull it out of her body, discarding it near the front door. He then started to cut at Sonia's neck, and he didn't stop until he had completely decapitated her. There was a cedar chest in the living room, and Thomas attempted to stuff her body into the chest, but he couldn't get the chest to close because Sonia's foot would not fit. So he decided to cut off her foot at the ankle in order to get the chest to close. He ended up wrapping the foot in a piece of blanket and leaving it outside of the chest, uh, and then put her head inside the chest along with her body and closed it. By the time he was done mutilating Sonia's corpse, it was around 3.30 in the morning. Thomas tried to relax, playing some of Sonia's records on her record player and just looking around the house some more. He no longer needed to be sneaky since Sonia was dead and there was no one else inside the house. So he, you know, really made himself at home and looked through all of her stuff. He took Sonia's car, the car that had initially caught his eye, out for a joyride, but he did return it back to the duplex. He finally left sometime around 5 a.m., taking just a single camera lens with him, but pretty much leaving everything else inside the home. By mid-morning on Friday, April 5th, the babysitter who had been watching one of Sonia's children became concerned because Sonia hadn't come by to pick up the child, she hadn't heard from Sonia, and that was very unlike Sonia. She was very on top of it, uh, especially when it came to her children. So she decided to call Sonia's house, but she couldn't get through to her. Not knowing what else to do and concerned that something might have happened to Sonia, the babysitter contacted the police to see if they could go by Sonia's home and check on her. When the police arrived, they knocked on the door but didn't receive any answer from inside. They tried the doorknob and they found it unlocked, but no one could have prepared them for the awful scene just inside. Blood was everywhere, covering the living room carpet and the mattress in the bedroom. Sonia's heart was found next to the front door and her body was in the cedar chest where Thomas had placed it several hours prior. None of the responding officers had ever seen a crime scene as depraved as the one they found at 2640 Yori Ave. Investigators didn't believe that the motive was robbery. You know, they searched her home. They really didn't see that much was missing. They did, though, find a manual for a camera lens, and they couldn't find that camera lens anywhere in the duplex. So they determined that that could have been stolen or it could have been missing before. They really weren't too sure. 
Investigators first focused on Sonia's inner circle, believing that this crime had been committed by someone that knew Sonia. You know, this seemed like a really personal attack. It was very brutal, and it just didn't seem like something that was random to investigators. So they started questioning everybody that knew Sonia. Her friends who had come over to the house the previous night told them that everything was fine when they left, that nothing was out of the ordinary, Sonia was acting normal, and they really couldn't give the investigators any information about someone who would want to hurt Sonia. You know, she was well-liked by everyone. She didn't have any enemies that would do something like this. So her friends were really at a loss. After a little while, the police kind of hit a dead end with all of Sonia's contacts, so they decided to start pursuing this missing camera lens. They went around to different pawn shops in the area to see if they could find it that way, and luckily they actually were able to locate this camera lens after just a few days of looking. The pawn shop had bought it from Thomas Lee Bean for $10, which is the equivalent of about $90 today. Police were able to locate Thomas pretty quickly. He had a criminal record and he was actually enrolled in high school still. So they were able to find him without a problem. Initially, when they questioned him, he was pretty cooperative and was willing to speak to them. So they decided to bring him back to the station where they could question him more thoroughly. As soon as they got to the police station, Thomas fled. He ran, but luckily he was caught up with. The police were able to fire some warning shots and catch up with him, at which point he decided to fully cooperate. When they were finally able to get him back inside the police station, he confessed to everything and, like I said, was completely cooperative. He was booked and charged with first-degree murder right away. But while awaiting trial, police investigators brought Thomas back to the duplex and he detailed step by step exactly what he had done the night that he killed Sonia. In terms of a motive, there really wasn't one besides Thomas's own internal drive to rape a woman that he had felt since he was just a small boy. He told police, quote, I don't know why I cut her up. I don't. I just shoved the knife in and started to cut. That's all. End quote. Although he had already thoroughly confessed to the crimes that he was accused of, Thomas attempted to plead not guilty by reason of insanity in court. The jury sat through in-depth descriptions of what Thomas had done to Sonia, both before and after her death. At the end of the trial, Thomas Lee Bean was found guilty of first-degree murder and was sentenced to death by gas chamber. In 1972, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that capital punishment was unconstitutional, which meant that all current inmates who had been sentenced to death, including Thomas Lee Bean, would have their sentences commuted to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Thomas Lee Bean is now 76 years old and remains in custody at the Northern Nevada Correctional Center. Sonia would now be 83 years old. The duplex is still standing in Reno, Nevada. The blood-soaked carpet of the living room was torn up after her death and now has laminate flooring instead. It was most recently listed for rent in January of 2020. The listing, of course, made no mention of the heinous crime that took place there, and it makes me wonder if the current residents have any idea 
what happened within their home. Thank you for listening to this episode of Morbid Tourism about Sonia Mikowski's duplex. If you like learning about morbid locations, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Stitcher. And please, if you have a second, leave us a rating. It really does help out. New episodes will be released weekly. Between episodes, you can visit www.morbidtourism.com to learn about more morbid locations. You can follow us on Instagram at morbidtourism. This podcast is researched, hosted, produced, and edited by me, Jules Kruger. Sources for this episode include Wikipedia, ChillingCrimes.com, and Zillow.